Hey there, this is Brent. And this is Amanda. We are the Unreliable Narrators. Here to talk about the strangeness, the mystery, and the wonder of Gene Wolfe's prose. What is time? What is memory? What is a person? Is this reality? Where are we? Do we exist? Have you ever considered that all your choices are what have brought you right here to this very moment? Episode 7, The Best Introduction to the Mountains. Well, that seems like a seamless transition right there. The mountains. Yes, the best introduction to the mountains. If you listen to episode 6, you know where that quote comes from. Leaf by Niggle. By J.R.R. Tolkien. The best introduction to the mountains is a little bit different from our usual fare. It is not a story. It is an essay in appreciation of Tolkien by Jean Wolfe, published sometime in, I believe it's 2001. It is a little bit disorganized as an essay, <laughs> a collection of a number of different parts. It opens with broad sweeping statement about the Dark Ages and then goes on to describe some aspects of Tolkien's work, then a description of how Gene Wolfe first found Tolkien, and more description of what he appreciated about Tolkien, his first readings of The Fellowship of the Ring, The Two Towers, and The Return of the King, and what delighted him in those stories, and then a description of a letter he sent to Mr. Tolkien, and the reply that he got back, and then more appreciation of Tolkien, who he is, what he is, as well as a, you know, the last section is really just a summative assessment of what is significant and important about Tolkien's work. I don't know if you were around in 2001. I mean, yeah. I know you were around, Brent. I'm not <laughs> sure if all of our listeners oh. were around in 2001. Which is a little disturbing yeah. to think about, because that's not that many years ago, right? It's just been a few years. Yeah. Yeah, but there was a significant cinematic event on the horizon. Yeah. It was that guy that did that zombie movie where... And Meet the Feebles. Yeah, Meet the Feebles and the zombie movie where he straps a lawnmower to his chest and <laughs> runs through zombie after zombie in this house for minutes upon minutes and... Yeah, that director. Yeah. He, Peter Jackson, I think, was his name. Yeah, and somehow he was chosen to direct the film adaptation of The Lord of the Rings. And he did some interesting and unusual things, including one thing that now does not seem at all unusual, but was groundbreaking at the time, which was filming all three movies at the same time, oh, even yeah. though they were released in sequence. No, that's a good point. It's so changed everything, like you don't even think about it now. Right. The culture shifted, a creative practice shifted, and now we take it for granted. Yeah. Yeah, so the Lord of the Rings movies were coming out, and a science fiction fantasy author and editor decided to release a volume of author's reflections on Tolkien just, you know, coincidentally coinciding mm -hmm. with the premiere of the first film. So Karen Haber is a fantasy author and editor, and yeah. she assembled essays from fantasy authors about their appreciation for Tolkien. And so Gene Wolfe composed this essay, The Best Introduction to the Mountains, for that collection. Oh, wow. This is a really good essay. I bet you she was tickled pink to have that and include it in there. <laughs> Shockingly. 
Gene Wolfe was rejected from the collection. What? And this essay was not included. And so instead, it came out in Interzone magazine. Oh, that's an interesting... Yes, it is interesting. And we might get into some of this in this episode, or we might have to save some of this for maybe a B-side episode. There were a lot of essays included in the collection, Meditations on Middle Earth, that are, in my opinion, distinctly inferior to this Gene Wolfe essay. And obviously, we're on episode seven of our podcast. We're, we're obviously Gene Wolfe partisans. Still, objectively, he has far more interesting things to say than at least several of the essays that were included. If you weren't alive in 2001, I think maybe hard to capture is just the resurgence of Tolkien and interest in Tolkien. Not that he'd ever been, at least in my lifetime, particularly obscure, but it feels like the transition moment to me where it went from being like, oh, the guys that play Dungeons and Dragons read Tolkien to then pretty much everybody was reading Tolkien. Like I was in college at the time and the number of people that I saw on campus walking around with the Lord of the Rings and you'd see people in the student union building just reading it because a lot of people that had missed out on it were wanting to read the books before the movies came out. And there was just a huge Tolkien mania for lack of... right. Well, I had a friend who rented out an entire theater for opening night for each of the three films. And granted, this is a friend who knows everybody Mm -hmm. and has a large circle of acquaintance, but he rented out a theater and then we all pitched in our $7 or $10 or whatever it was to go (laughs) and people were in costume. I mean, I was sneaking snacks into the theater because I was poor (laughs) at the time. And it was difficult for me to go because these were midnight showings Mm -hmm. for the premiere or, you know, when it's released. And I had three jobs at the time and was in college. And so staying up all night to watch a movie was was kind of a big deal. But yeah, watch them in the theaters opening night. Yeah, I did too. And the theater had oversold tickets. Oh, no. Yeah. So I actually had to sit on the steps in the aisle. Don't do that at home. That's a fire violation. But <laughs> Don't tell anyone. Yeah, that, that was pre-9-11. It was. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, there was just the amount of Tolkien, everything that was kind of right. entered into the culture at this yeah. moment. The energy. Yeah. So that's the context that this anthology of essays was published in. Mm-hmm. And... I think they probably must have printed quite a few of them, and I don't know how well they sold, but you can easily get a used copy online if you are interested in picking it up to read it. Okay. To see which ones didn't make it. (laughs) Yes. Or should have made it. Oh, yeah. Shouldn't have made it. Shouldn't have made it. Yeah. Yeah. So Gene Wolfe wrote and submitted this essay to the collection. It was not included, but Interzone clearly saw that it was worth printing and published it. Yeah. So the first paragraph here, I guess I'll just start off going through it. Like you said, the organization, on one hand, it's almost like a free association, but it's, yes. it works, or at least I find it works, as a cohesive whole. Well, I think thematically and just intellectually, the parts are very much connected, even though it, there doesn't seem to be quite a through narrative of structure. Yeah. 
So the first paragraph that strikes me in here is where he's talking about a different time, a different age, and part of the cultural aspect of it was different. Like you knew who the king was, and this is one thing he calls out, like a king might rule badly, but everyone agreed as to what good rule was. Yes. This is a critique I often hear of the Middle Ages, or at least our modern perception of the Middle Ages, because like the Middle Ages is kind of a sweeping hand for... Oh, yeah. It's only a thousand years of history. Let's just go ahead and describe it in one tossed-off phrase. Yeah. But there is that sense in there where there wasn't as much freedom with social mobility. Yes. Like if you were born a peasant, you were going to be a peasant and die a peasant. Mm -hmm. If you were born a lord or a member of the aristocracy who owned land, like even though you may be poor in the sense compared to your fellow aristocracy members, you were... You're still a member of that class. Yeah. So in the class distinctions... It's something we look at and then it kind of chafes us and we're like, yeah. We find ourselves very resistant to that because one of the things that we believe as a culture is that social mobility is a fundamental aspect of our society. Although, spoiler alert, it's not. What? Are you telling me that the term middle class is just a a, a hand? A comforting fiction. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. I am telling you that it's a comforting fiction. Hmm. Yeah. So that. We have a perception of a total lack of social mobility, although, sorry, medieval historian moment, there actually is a bit of social mobility in the Middle Ages, only it's not happening over the course of an individual lifespan. There's about a six-generation cycle for most noble families oh, okay. to, that where they rise to the noble class via conquest or noble service of some kind. Maintain their status for five or six generations, and then through poverty, end up falling out of the nobility and and descending from it. But that's not a lot of social mobility. It's just, you know, somewhat cyclical generationally. Yeah. Well, and I knew that there's another, like, kind of, I don't know if you'd call this social mobility, but the church also provided some, like, you could join the different orders. Yes, and any particularly bright peasant boy who wanted to become a monk and learn to read generally had opportunity to rise to the level of his intellectual capability strictly within the church. Yeah. Yeah, so he starts this out by describing that one of the wonderful things about the so-called Dark Ages, about the Middle Ages, is that everyone knew what the law was, as in everybody knew what the moral law was. The king could rule badly, but everyone knew what good rule meant. And if the king was ruling badly, he knew he was ruling badly. (laughs) Yeah. And likewise, if a peasant behaved badly, he couldn't be proud of himself for behaving badly. He knew he was wrong. Everyone around him knew he was wrong. There was no confusion about what constituted good action and bad action. Yeah. And that external characterize it as the moral law or the acknowledgement of that moral law that being human in the that framework like everybody understood that and they were aware of it and aware of the weight of it he goes on to then give a little biographical description was that he grew up in a similar sort of microcosm a a culture that taught him a code of conduct and he goes to describe just very conventional sort of social understanding of how 
an honorable man or a, a good guy. I don't know. Guy seems kind of dismissive. This would yeah. have been quite some time ago. <laughs> but how a good man should behave. He should be courteous to those who are weaker than him. Mm-hmm. He should respect other people, even if they were in an inferior position, because they might have better character yeah. than he did. So position wasn't the most important thing. Your character was the most important thing. And authority, legitimate authority, was to be obeyed, and you weren't supposed to try and get away with anything, but strength, mere strength, coercion, and what he says, what Washington calls power and (laughs) Chicago clout, Uh wonderful phrasing, that was to be defied. So it might be better to be a slave than to die, but it was better to die than be a slave who acquiesced in his own slavery. Yeah. Above all, I was to be honest with everyone. Debts were to be paid. And my word was to be as good as I could make it. Yeah, so he's describing a culture of strict personal responsibility and a sense of right and wrong that has nothing to do with mere strength or power, but has everything to do with the honorable way to behave toward other people. Yeah. Yeah, and then he describes entering the mills of Mordor. (laughs) And he doesn't really elaborate on what he means by that, but it seems to have been his early experiences in the working world. Because at this point, he would have been out of the army and out of the university and beginning to join the working world. Yeah. His uh, comment here reminds me of a section from C.S. Lewis where he talks about when you get into either a new regiment or new school or a new club, and they all have their local rules and laws and that sometimes you find yourself in one where what's considered to be noble or exceptional behavior is what everybody outside of that particularly bad regiment or school would just consider decent bare minimum right so and it seems like wolf is contacting this in his early working life yeah the sense that Perhaps people are out for themselves, or perhaps people are just really worshiping power itself. Yeah. And so in the midst of this difficult time in his life, which just contextually is 1956, he is subscribing to science fiction and fantasy magazines and reading in them. Yeah. And I guess for a little bit of context there, so 56 would be, so we're, World War II is done. There's victory in Europe. Victory Yay. in Japan. <laughs> yeah. However, Europe's infrastructure is totally crushed because of the war. And the what we now call the Pacific Rim today, like the so Japan and China, Korea, all those islands in there, they've also been through the war and their infrastructure's crushed. So this is the post war boom for the yes. US because they were not we didn't lose our infrastructure. We expanded it during World War II. Yeah. And none of that was actually ever under attack other than a, a few German submarines in the Gulf. And there was a incendiary yeah. bomb via balloon. Yeah. Balloon, yeah. like the battle for Los Angeles. If you look that up, that's an interesting little thing. And then there was a battle between the Japanese up in Alaska. Right. With U.S. troops. But as far as the mainland U.S. goes, uh, there was, I think, one or two bombs that actually made it to U.S. soil. I think one that burned a small fire in Oregon okay. and one that did not detonate. But, I mean, we had, we had defenses installed on the West Coast, but they were never needed. Yeah. So this is 
uh, American manufacturing and industry is. And Wolf the engineer is entering that manufacturing world. Yeah. So he says that he read a review in fantasy and science fiction, and it convinced him then and there that he must read The Lord of the Rings. <laughs> did you find that review? I did not. I did. Oh, you did? Yes. So that was a leading question. So I went and looked up every copy of the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. Oh. 1955 through 1956. Okay. Wanting to see if I could find what review it was that Wolf read that convinced him that he should read The Lord of the Rings. And inconveniently, there are five different issues between 55 and 56 that mention The Lord of the Rings. So... When each of the volumes of The Lord of the Rings came out, uh -huh. there was a notice in fantasy and science fiction that they were available. Okay. And Gene Wolfe says in The Best Introduction to the Mountains that he is afraid that he's doing Anthony Butcher a grave injustice because he doesn't remember who wrote the review. But he says Anthony Butcher, and it was Anthony Butcher who... Oh. Each of the notices was by the editor of the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, and it was Butcher each time. Okay. So there was a notice each time a volume came out. Then in, I believe it was June of 56, they mentioned that they're going to give some extra space to reviewing The Lord of the Rings next month. But it doesn't amount to an extremely long review. It's, it's a short few paragraphs, but it is indeed glowing. It starts out with Butcher assessing whether or not you can tell that a huge cultural moment is happening. Whether or not the contemporary viewers of Shakespeare's plays or the readers of Dashiell Hammett or George Bernard Shaw knew that these particular instances were the genre were what would endure. And hmm. so then he says, I think, I can't be sure, but I think this might be the book of the decade. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. And he calls it an epic trilogy. He describes the great quest and says, this is a very typical heroic journey. And then he says, let's see here, what's the particularly great part of it? I have, I know, still not managed to convey the true quality of this epic, nor did Auden, because he refers to Auden's review that appeared, I think it was in The New Yorker or something like that. All right. Nor did Auden wholly succeed in his much longer piece. I have not mentioned the gentle down-to-earth humor provided by the unmatchable hobbits, nor the extraordinary way in which all of the races of the middle world, the middle world, <laughs> each a wholly credible individual creation combine meaningfully to represent the infinite facets of the soul of man. I can only say that anyone with the faintest interest in imaginative literature must at least sample The Lord of the Rings. Not everyone will find it to his taste. It will never appear on any bestseller lists, <laughs> nor I am assured will it ever be forgotten. So, High praise. I, I think so. It seems pretty clear to me that this is the review that Wolf read, because the year's 56. This appeared in July of 56, hmm. and he immediately ordered the books. Yeah, from there, he goes on to describe the lengthy ordering process, cause, yes. <laughs> which seems funny even, here we are, 20 years later. Yeah, 20 years on from this essay, which is 45 years on from the events that he's narrating. Yeah, and even now, what he's describing seems kind of quaint, where it's like, oh, you got to go into a Disney Barnes & Noble 
Well, or... he says there were bookstores, but they didn't carry any fantasy or science fiction. So the only way to get these books was to order them from the publisher or to order them from the magazine. Yeah. But the thing he's describing, like, you couldn't go in there. And now I look around and it's like so many of the like borders is closed. Yes. Barnes yes. and Noble starting to go. Yeah. And so it's like even 20 years later, it's like, oh, click buy it now on Amazon. And right. So and it seems odd to me that you would have to order these through the magazine. Like you would actually clip out a little section in the back and then send your check in. Right. It seems crazy to think of in some ways. And yet it also was in many ways a golden age for the production of this kind of literature. Yeah. I mean, never mind that we've already pronounced Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings, the work of the century, or at least I have, <laughs> um, the, the great work of the 20th century. But he was far from alone in the speculative fiction genre. There are tons of books being written and sold. And so even with the inconveniences of ordering from the magazine, there's something that's keeping this alive and nourishing yeah. it to the degree that it could thrive. Yeah. I feel like Amazon makes it super convenient to order a copy of The Lord of the Rings, but it also makes it very difficult to discover anything new and interesting. Yes, I would agree with that assessment. I like that. All right. Yeah, so he describes ordering each of the books, how he disciplined himself to read only one chapter a day, and then how he escaped the bonds of his own law. Because while he only read one chapter a day, he could go back and reread everything up to that point, which is a delightful picture, in my opinion. And then he orders each new volume as soon as it becomes available. Yeah. When I first read some of Gene Wolfe's works, I went through the Book of the New Sun very quickly. I remember. Yeah. And then I realized Wolfe is old. Yeah. He is not going to be around forever. And so then I started, I had limited myself to, I could only read one new Gene Wolfe book a year because I was like, if I burn through his entire works, like I did Book of the New Sun, I was going to be through it all. And then he would have been dead. And it's like, oh no, I, you know, it's just kind of, it's a weird thing to think about and look back on now, but then well, I now that he's gone and we don't get more books. Yeah. So yeah. it pleases me a little to know <laughs> that he did the same thing with like Lord of the Rings where yes. he limited himself. He to... slowed himself down. Yeah. I resort to his expediency for dealing with the limitation of good books, which is kind of a silly thing to say because, I mean, we're sitting in a room full of books, which you can't see right now. And there's another room in the house that's full of books and yeah. there's a... a you know, I know that Barnes & Noble is still there and Amazon's available and even better, abooks.com, where you can order all kinds of wonderful old things. Yep. Hashtag that not sponsored. <laughs> doesn't have to be because <laughs> yep. it's just that much a part of my life. <laughs> and that I cannot go on a vacation without finding every used bookstore in radius of wherever I'm going. I love a good road trip for the opportunity to map used bookstores and stop at all of them. So mm -hmm. it seems kind of silly to say, but I still feel a sense of limitation because as many new things as I can find to read, finding something that is as transcendent as The Lord of the Rings was for me when I first read it, yeah, and as The Book of the New Sun was for both of us, and it's just difficult. And so I haven't finished reading all of Wolf's novels, primarily because I don't want to be done with all of them. Yeah. 
But I go back and reread things anytime I get a craving. You know, I mm-hmm. try to discipline myself because one year I found myself, I had reread The Lord of the Rings three times in the same year. <laughs> and I was like, I think I might need to pace myself a little bit more. So with things like that, I try to limit it to once a year. But yeah. I like that he had that same approach. Well, <laughs> I can't read more. I can't read it too fast, but I can always reread it. Yeah. What did you think about him putting the sections of poetry in the uh, front pages? Well, I found it charming. I don't do that. I don't do that either, so. Well, I think that that's a limitation of my own taste and imagination. He's, you know, he's connecting different works. And he's clearly copying in sections of poetry that just speak to the spirit of the book. Yeah. So, yeah, he describes in the essay how he wrote quotations from other works in the fronts of each of the three volumes. And he also describes his delight in the maps that are included. Uh, Yeah. Funny that he would say that because I know one critique of the Book of the New Sun is that it has no maps in it. And some people find that very frustrating. Well, okay, not to get too far off into wolf land. Yeah. But he does that on purpose. Oh, yeah. Um, Not because he couldn't draw a map, but because he doesn't want you looking at the map and going, oh, I know. Yeah. Well, and then he later put a map in Planet Engineering, which I guess just frustrates many people because it's not completely accurate to what the book describes. Well, interestingly enough, many maps that have been drawn of this world aren't accurate. What? It's almost like somebody wrote a story. Hmm. I feel like somebody should talk about that someday. Yeah. Okay. The other charming anecdote that goes along with his acquisition of the books is that he and his wife, who got married, he and Rosemary got married in 56, mm-hmm. and he calls it a charmed or a wonderful year. I can't remember the exact line he uses. And he read aloud to her and she read aloud to him whenever they were driving. Yeah. A touching little moment. Anymore, I don't see that. I look in other cars and the kids are watching DVDs in the back and the driver's driving or maybe looking at a phone. (laughs) And anybody in the passenger seat is definitely on their phone. Yeah. Yeah. So that's just this little thing here. Seems very sweet, like an artifact of another time just because we're so distracted and always engaged in something that's not what's in front of us. Personal confession, I am very impatient with reading aloud. I did a lot of reading aloud with my students. I would read sections of literature to them, both as a way to work our way through the literature, but also because it's important to me that students know how something should be read because there are different ways to read things. Yeah. And reading something aloud well is helpful for them to learn how to interpret things. But I tend to be very impatient with reading aloud because I can read so much faster alone yeah. And I tend to be gulping things down because I'm, <laughs> I don't know, a greedy pig, I guess. But, <laughs> but yes, perhaps reading aloud while driving in the car as a newlywed would be, perhaps that would be a good experience. Not one I've had. <laughs> so there's a little bit of a fan letter in here? Yes, it's a really interesting fan letter. Well, we don't have the fan letter. We know that Wolf wrote to Tolkien. Yeah. But Wolf includes in his essay is the letter that Tolkien wrote back to him. Yeah. A little humble brag there. I know. <laughs> well, it might be a little bit humble brag. Oh, yes. Tolkien wrote to me. 
But it's also, I'm sorry, this is too on the nose, even for, I don't know, a fictional universe, much less the real one. Uh Wolf wrote to Tolkien to ask about the etymology of the word warg, (laughs) which means wolf. (laughs) (laughs) What? (laughs) So are you saying that even in this nonfiction piece, there's a hidden wolf in here? There is a hidden wolf. (laughs) And wolf really did it. The letter really exists. And it also required the help of Tolkien scholar Douglas A. Anderson, whose essay was included in Meditations on Middle-Earth, oh, by the was. way. Okay. It required a Tolkien scholar to decipher the handwriting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I find it delightful that he asked about the etymology of essentially wolf and <laughs> yeah. in Anglo-Saxon. So it's uh, the way the world just kind of folds back in on itself. If somebody wrote this, it'd be like, oh, wow, this is, yeah. That that was a little overdone, Mr. Wolf. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. But it just happens in reality. Yeah, and I'm assuming Wolf was sincerely interested in the etymology of warg. Mm -hmm. Probably at least partly because Wolf is his name and he knows that wolves and wargs, there's a connection here and he wants to understand what it is. And then, yeah, dear Mr. Wolf, warg means wolf. It comes (laughs) from the old... High German, <laughs> Warg, Norse Varg, which also means wolf, etc. I do like. So basically, you're there. <laughs> yeah, I do like the comment at the end. I adopted the word, which has a good sound for the meaning. It's like, yeah, he just liked the way it, it sounded. So. Yes, which is a very Tolkien-esque thing. And I think that one thing that kind of has become clear to me on reading some of Wolf's interviews and some of the essays that he's done is that he eventually became very enthralled and a lover of language and words. Yeah. And I know some people read the Book of the New Sun and they feel like he's just peppered obscure words in there. And some people even come to the conclusion that he's just making up words. But I did read an interview where he was saying that some days when he was writing it, he'd spend a whole day, like in the Oxford English Dictionary, looking for the word that had the precise meaning that he wanted to convey in the story. Right. So that part I found interesting because like, then we go back to, to Tolkien, who's right. like helped work on. Yes. And he wasn't spending it, you know, on the website of the Oxford English Dictionary where he could <laughs> easily search yes. definitions. I don't know if anyone, if any of our listeners have ever used the Oxford English Dictionary. Or I don't know um, if you have. In case they haven't, can you explain how Well, there goes? are basically two options that you have. One is the compact Oxford English Dictionary that comes with its own magnifying glass. <laughs> two volumes that are as large as a church Bible and print that is tinier than a mustard seed. <laughs> That's what we call a callback in the business. Yeah. <laughs> and you can search through it. Or there's a 20-volume edition. That has, I mean, you know, it's a functional research tool, but it's a large, large, large work. Yeah. And then, incidentally, the Oxford English Dictionary, one of the early editors of the OED was none other than J.R.R. Tolkien. uh Just FYI. Yeah. And then, one thing with the Oxford English Dictionary, there's quotes in there from like context from the literature, too. Yes. So it's not exactly like a modern stripped down dictionary it gives you the context through the centuries for a word yeah and its goal was to 
list not only all of the English words, but all of their uses, all, every separate definition, every separate meaning yeah. of each word. And I may be incorrect in this statement, but it seems like I've read somewhere that it's kind of acknowledged as one of the works of a language. Like, for example, Spanish doesn't really have an equivalent and like other languages don't necessarily have a work that attempted to record the scope of the language. So it's a unique undertaking. Yeah. And I know some people, there's been projects that have attempted to do that in other languages because of the Oxford English Dictionary. Yeah. So Yeah. Well, he then talks about, after, you know, describing his delight and his love of The Lord of the Rings, he says that the books mean so much to him and that there are echoes in his own books and you won't embarrass him if you point out that he is imitating Tolkien. And he says, Terry Brooks has often been disparaged for imitating Tolkien, including by certain people in this podcast. What? <laughs> It, particularly by those reviewers who find his books inferior to Tolkien's own. And this is great. I can say only that I wish there were more imitators. We need them. And that all imitations of so great an original must necessarily be inferior. I don't know who you're referring to. I've read this sort of shananananara multiple times. <laughs> have you? Shananananara. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yes, I have said that. Like it's. <laughs> Because when I first tried to read the sort of Shannara, it is almost a slavish reworking of The Lord of the Rings. So much so that as I was reading it, I just set it aside. And I was like, yeah, I'd rather just read Lord of the Rings again. So I do think it's a good counterbalance here that Wolf is acknowledging that, no, it's good to have these. Yeah, and I don't think that your objection to Brooks would be because he imitated Tolkien, but because it didn't succeed for you as a reader, yeah. as an imitation of Tolkien. Yeah. I read The Wizard Knight, and yes, there are reflections of Tolkien in it, but it succeeds in its own right as a work of art. Yeah. And I also just want to put a little footnote in here that while I think that The Sword of Shannara was derivative, He's known for that book, but I think some of his other books, once he got the Tolkien out of his system and allowed himself to explore other things, I think he did better. Right. So, so he had good creative energies, and when he was able to work on them in their own context, it worked better for him. Yeah. But he has a point. Like, if you are influenced by someone, it is going to, your work that you're reflecting is not going to be as great as the original. And well, and I would agree with him. The Wizard Knight is not as great as The Lord of the Rings. It's a great work in its own right, but it doesn't measure up, if that's the metric. Yeah. I may be going off the rails here, because <laughs> oh, I have well. <laughs> two ideas that I, I kind of want to put together. So Harold Bloom wrote a book, The Anxiety of Influence, and it's been years since I read it. In fact, it may have been back in college, so probably close to 20 years ago. Old. <laughs> yes. But one of the things he talks about now, I guess disclaimer here, much like much like with Terry Brooks, but <laughs> not everything Harold Bloom wrote was worth reading. <laughs> yeah. And he casts a lot of it in very Freudian terms. Yes. It's very Oedipal. 
Yeah. So that part, I don't really think his interpretive framework is that good, but I do think he has the baseline of a good idea where if you are influenced by someone, you're measuring your work by that other artist's work. And so there's that anxiety of influence because they become a shadow that haunts your own creative activities. And it's a very difficult thing to labor under and it's hard to get out and do your own thing. So that creativity of coming across Tolkien, for example, and I think most fantasy literature has this problem because he is such a large figure in fantasy, but anytime an artist is inspired by someone, it's that double-edged sword where it's like they go on to do their own thing, but then they also... They're doing it in the shadow. Yeah. So, and then kind of to tie back into uh, Leaf by Niggle in one way, tangentially, I should, yes. I should <laughs> disclaimer that before. So if we're talking in terms of sub-creation, there's a interesting um, section in the New Testament where Jesus says, like, you'll do even greater works than me, which is, I find interesting in terms of, like, the work that Christ did, but then Tolkien taking that and putting, like, in Leaf by Niggle saying that no, like Niggle's work actually was incorporated and worked into the mountains. The actual substance of creation. Yeah. So it's a weird and interesting tension. And of course, Tolkien himself was influenced by people that went before him. And there's a section C.S. Lewis has where he's talking about how he was influenced by George MacDonald. And Lewis says his imagination was baptized. Yes. I feel that when a lot of people talk about Tolkien, there almost is that baptizing of the imagination. And in that sense, like, it's hard to separate out, oh, how did he influence you? How did, like, because if he redeemed your imagination into a new, a new world, a new universe, a new context, a new imaginative, I don't even know the right word to describe it. Well, I feel like I just want to jump to the end of Wolf's essay, where he basically tells you how Tolkien baptized his imagination. Yeah. Which is that Tolkien, I mean, where we were there after the paragraph about the wizard knight, how did he do it? He somehow escaped the modern cast of mind mm-hmm. that makes us glory in ignorance and regard our forebears with contempt. <laughs> yep. And then... He says in the end that what Tolkien gives us is the truth that society need not be as we see it around us. It could be in some different way. And we could have a society, and now I'm back to quoting, in which the laws were few and just, simple, permanent, and familiar to everyone. A society in which everyone stood shoulder to shoulder because everyone lived by the same changeless rules and everyone knew what those rules were. When we had it, we would also have a society in which the lack of wealth was not a reason for resentment, but a spur to ambition, and in which wealth was not a cause for self-indulgence, but a call to service. And I think I know why Wolf's essay wasn't included in Meditations on Middle-Earth. Oh, really? Why is that? Well, he makes a transcendent claim. Yes. And as I recall, I read all of Meditations on Middle-Earth. And I didn't read it maybe with a scholar's attention. But as I recall, no one else makes a transcendent claim about Tolkien. 
Oh. And it's an interesting observation. And Wolf Wolf very much does. Now I'm I'm open to correction. There may be something that I read inattentively, but there's a lot of appreciation of Tolkien. And there's a lot of description of what Tolkien does and does well. And there's a lot of comment on, you know, personal benefit and personal joy. But Wolf goes beyond that. And he says that what Tolkien gives us is a vision of a world that is governed by a code, something like the code he grew up with. And that's a code that tells us that this world doesn't have to be the mills of Mordor. We can actually have a different kind of society. Not because we're perfectible, but because through some sort of simplification and clarity of the moral law, we would be able to be shoulder to shoulder with one another. In all of the myriad of complexities of human life, disparity of wealth, disparity of ability, difference of opinion, difference of taste, we could still have that core of accepted law. That's a pretty profound claim. It is. A very hopeful claim, too, because you look around and it's always every election cycle. Oh, if we just get our person in, in insert whatever, it doesn't matter if it's school board, library board, governor, president, yeah, yeah. governor president, yeah. <clears throat> whatever. Oh, if we only fight this war. Oh, if we do this tax. Oh, if we do this thing, this one thing in this like already complex, complicated, bureaucratic interweaving of just laws that's such a complex ecosystem. It's always laws like and social assumptions and cultural assumptions. Yeah. yeah. So in one sense, so it is very hopeful to make that claim. Your fellow man, it's a human being. Like, right. So. Hobbit or elf or dwarf. Yeah. Yeah. So as I was rereading this for the podcast, it put me in mind of David Graeber's Utopia of Rules and Dawn yeah. of Everything. Okay. Let me hear so, about that. Well, so when, I had never put Tolkien and Graeber together before, but Wolf did that for me, saying that what Tolkien gave us is the gift of being able to imagine that society could be different than it is. Okay. Which is essentially Graeber and Wingrove's argument in The Dawn of Everything, where they say, whenever you sit down to write a history of inequality, mm-hmm. you're starting out with an assumption that inequality is a problem. When you actually examine the archaeological and anthropological record, what you come up with is a, a far more complex picture of humanity where inequality exists in many different ways in different societies. But what we have is not that we have a problem with inequality. We have a problem with being unable to imagine a different social structure. Mm. And they write about a huge variety of human cultures, some of them pretty far back in the past and pretty minimally understood through an archaeological record. Okay. But also indigenous cultures of far more recent date. And the main example they have is the indigenous cultures on the American continent, which we actually have some pretty good descriptions of yeah. through members of various tribes, as well as through your European observers. And there's a pattern that was prevalent on the American continents that was, if you don't like the way things are going, you can just pack up and leave and move somewhere else. And while there are a wide variety of of structures, social structures, most of them had some component that was, there is an authority, 
but they have no authority where they're not physically present. And so yeah. if the king annoys you or the king is presumptuous, and very often the chief, the king, the governor, or in some societies, it's more of a council, the group of elders have a, a great deal of authority, yeah. maybe even the power of life and death, but it's limited by their physical presence. And so members of a tribe or a community can simply leave something that they don't like or hmm. reimagine the structure through some kind of cyclical, creative, political play. So one of the things that Tolkien does offer us is a picture of a different kind of human society. And yeah. I don't think we recognize that very readily because we just kind of fill in the blanks of the story or pre-fill the story with our expectations of a feudal society. But there's an interesting combination of two of your favorite things in Tolkien, <laughs> monarchy uh -huh. and anarchy. <laughs> and Go I, on. I think that that's what David Graeber is getting at in Utopia of Rules, that we are currently, as a society, gravitating toward a rule-bound structure. And so we have this, what you were talking about, this piling up of legislation, these piling up of rules, and this huge, these layers and layers of rules and paperwork. And instead of being able to imagine doing away with them in some fundamental way, we just add what we think are maybe slightly better rules on top of everything that already exists. Or... Yeah trying to layer new rules in order to correct old rules. But what nobody ever talks about is getting rid of the rules <laughs> or even getting rid of a rule. Like it's actually literally almost impossible to repeal a law. Yeah. It is so awkward and difficult that all anyone ever does is pass a law that supersedes it yeah. instead of eliminating it. Along those lines, it's funny reading Daniel as a child <laughs> and Esther where it, it's talking about over the Jews are in a new area and they're navigating complex like legal and judicial systems that are not their own. Yeah. And they're one of the comments and actually this one's in Esther, but it, it's like the laws of the Medes and Persians. Like once it's done, it can't be undone. And as a child, in my ignorance, I'd be like, oh, that's so silly. Why would a society ever do that? And yet, in some ways, that feels like basically we recreated it. Right. So. Yeah, we have so many layers of laws and rules. And one of the illustrations Graeber uses is the accumulation of paperwork. And there's almost never the elimination of a form. There's almost always the addition of a new form. Yeah. And... I had a vivid experience recently with just dealing with a bureaucratic, a minor bureaucratic matter that required a <laughs> creation of an online account, the emailing of six PDFs, <laughs> the downloading, printing, filling out, scanning, and re-uploading of another document, <laughs> and then <laughs> the photographing of two different forms of ID in order to do something incredibly minor. Yeah. Yay. Yeah, yay. <laughs> so Wolf tells us that one of the things that Tolkien gives us, or the thing that he thinks that's important that Tolkien gives us, is the ability to imagine that freedom, love of neighbor, and personal responsibility. There's deep slopes. He could not climb them for us. We must do that ourselves. But he has shown us the road and the reward. And so Tolkien providing us with an imaginative space where we could see a society functioning without 
all of the horrible things that we're tired of dealing with. Yeah. <laughs> all legislation that is special interest legislation in our society. One thing we kind of passed over. Yes. Sorry. The- I got a little carried away there with the Graber thing. No, no, I'm glad you brought it up because I actually think that that's very relevant for Wolf and Tolkien. And I mean, we're going to be bringing up some of those themes in future short stories. So, Spoilers. Oh, oh yeah. I mean, spoiler. I, <laughs> I mean, maybe I- we won't. <laughs> but he does quote from a C.S. Lewis poem mm. here. Yes, he does. I love this poem. And he doesn't quote from the whole thing here. And as a matter of fact, I think he, he's left out a few of it. But it, I love that where it's like, him who as the death spear entered into his vitals made critical comments on its workmanship and aim. It's like, are these the pagans you spoke of? Know your betters and crouch, dogs. <laughs> right? Yeah. And it's just the way people talk about paganism, almost this weird longing. And they're just... I don't even know what the word is I'm looking for, but they're like post. Post-modernity? Yeah, post-modernity. And they're just painting their own concepts of what pagan life was like. And Lewis wrote this poem many years ago. Like the first section of it is about the pious Greeks and how they come with heads bowed before the gods. And then the second section is the Norsemen who, like, even though they know, it's like, the gods are going to fight in Ragnarok and they already know they're going to die and lose. And the Norsemen know they're going to die and lose, but everybody goes to their post on that day. Mm -hmm. And yet they still sit there and like, ah, you could have aimed that spear a little bit better. That could have (laughs) been. Right. You missed my heart, idiot. And look, the haft is not well carved. Yeah. Yeah. And then that's Lewis's comment in there. It's like, no, the paganism that you're wishing for it never existed. But yet these men and women, they actually did live. These pious yes. Greeks, these brave Norsemen. Yes. And it's like, these people are your betters. And yeah. That, like when I first read that, I fell in love with that poem. And it was like, yes, no, he, he captured something that was very, it resonated deeply in me. Yeah. So. Yeah. That sense that I think we pull the forms and the the laws and the regulations and the the rules around us to comfort and pad us from the bumps and difficulties of life. The great fear is that there will be a mistake or that something will go wrong. But what will you do in the case of blah, 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 or, you know, some various versions of think of the children, which, (laughs) or think of, you know, just think of the risks where the most terrifying thing seems to be that something could go wrong in a way that shortens my life or Mm -hmm. diminishes my comfort or shortens the life of my child or diminishes their comfort. And the thing that we just consistently ignore as a society is how that diminishment of comfort or even that shortening of life is possible for that to be in the service of something interesting, beautiful, transcendent, glorious. And so to die with clever words on our lips is not (laughs) something that a modern person thinks. Like, I haven't thought about how to go out with a witty phrase. (laughs) I've, I've thought about living with a witty phrase, but I haven't thought about dying with a witty phrase. Yeah. But nobody hears the story of St. Lawrence's martyrdom and isn't delighted that some, 
Well, I'm not going to say no one. I suppose someone might. But I hear the story of St. Lawrence's martyrdom, you know, mm-hmm. turn me over. I'm done on this side. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I think, well, you know what? You could have lived a hundred years and not had a better moment than that. Yeah. And yet personally, it's very difficult to take any kind of risk in doing something unconventional or outside the quote unquote laws. Mm-hmm. Um, not advocating breaking the law or am I? <laughs> <laughs> And to make any kind of difficult or uncomfortable choice for yourself and especially for your children. We're all terrified of doing that. Yeah. But we should be terrified of not doing that because what happens when someone grows up padded all around without ever any contact with the real world and real consequences for choices? Yeah. That's a bad thing. Yeah. And Mary and Pippin were great characters already. They were fun and interesting and people of spirit and life. But then after being wearied and mm-hmm. tortured and pained <laughs> and you know taken to the limit yeah. and having to fight not just for their lives but for the survival of the kingdom the survival of middle earth then they come back and they're not just witty interesting and fun they're deep and strong and profound and taller so i had one last thing that i wanted to bring up and maybe i don't need to bring this up but i felt like it was important Do you want to? You don't have to need to. You can just want to. Yeah. Well, so when we were talking about Tolkien's concept of subcreation, I think that one thing that Wolf is tapping into here is that, so if the mountains are heaven, and if Lord of the Rings in some way is part, it's a country that's near the mountains, adjacent to the mountains. Right. Some part of the afterlife. Yeah. And then we have Wolf with the talking about Terry Brooks's sort of Shannara, his own work, The Wizard Knight. But then we also have this quote in here about the pagan Norseman. If I understand what he's doing here, and I may be wrong, but I think if we're taking that in the context of subcreation, there is a way that Lord of the Rings, those ancient pagan men and women, sort of Shannara and Wolf's own works with the Wizard Knight, they've been amended onto Niggle's um, painting in some way. They've now become a real part of the created order in some way that we don't really understand, but, but in a way that's a good net positive for humanity. Well, I think what's really interesting about that is that doesn't lead to sort of an aesthetic wishy-washiness that, oh, your different tastes don't really, like, your taste is for the Wizard Knight, somebody else's taste is for the Sword of Shannara, you know, Mm -hmm. to each their own. Yeah. That leads to a sort of integrated wholeness that however the Sword of Shannara is incarnated, it has a perfectibility within it that will require effort, Yeah. but will be an integrated part of the whole, illuminating or expanding or introducing someone to the introduction to the mountains. <laughs> yes. And I think that holds, that, that feels real in some sense. Yeah. It is good that Terry Brooks sat down to write the sort of Shannara. Yes. It, it is a good thing that he engaged in that creative process. Even if I don't find the book appealing, Yeah. it's just that all tastes are equally good, but all creation is better than destruction. Yeah. Yeah. All word is better than anti-word. Yes. So I like that. 
your comment there. All creation is better than destruction. And it's hard to imagine and create. Yes. But it is a, it's a good and worthwhile thing, no matter how poorly you as the creator do it. Right. And I've been working on stories and various projects for several years now. And I wanted to be a writer starting about the age of seven or eight, I think. <laughs> but I did very little in that way for a very long time. And I think that part of what I needed was to grow in ability, but also part of what I needed was to be able to let go of that fantasy of success, mm -hmm. which is so much of wanting to be a writer, Yeah, and get to the, well, I'm thinking here in niggle terms, dreaming of the writing itself as a meaningful activity, Yeah, and then to doing the writing. Mm -hmm. So I think that Many of us start off with some idea of wanting to be something, yeah. but not wanting to do the thing. Like, I would like to be noble and brave and glorious, but I don't want a spear in my guts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I wanted to be a writer, and now I think I've finally grown to the point where I actually want to do the writing most of the time. Yeah. And what's becoming more and more clear is that I also have to want to do all of the things that prepare me to be in the position to write well. So I want mm. to be disciplined about the chores that need to be done so they don't get in the way. And I yeah. need to be disciplined about how I focus my attention on things so that entertainment doesn't bleed my creative energies away into mere consumption. And so mm. there are all these I have to get to bed in a timely manner because writing in the morning is what works best for me. And so yeah. I need to be able to wake up rested. Like, all of it. Yeah. And yeah. So I it's think a, that was going where packaged somewhere, but... and integrated whole. Yes. So yeah. And it's difficult because the desire is to be known as something, be known as a writer, but the actual process and progress of being a writer is actually writing. Yes. And the desire to be known as a writer is rooted in the human drive for identity, mm. which is, I think, it's not something to despise, but there's this short circuiting that happens in our human weakness is that we want to be known for it before it actually is real. And if somehow you were able to wave a magic wand and be identified as a writer before you'd actually done the writing, you would have quadruple the normal case of <laughs> imposter syndrome. Oh, yeah. And imposter syndrome on its own is bad enough. You don't want a quadruple dose. <laughs> no. Well, do you have any thoughts on how Wolf's view here on an introduction to the mountain might flavor future discussions about his work? Well, I imagine that we'll have to consider what regions of the afterlife he's building up. <laughs> yeah. I feel like Rattler probably wasn't very helpful in that regard, but perhaps we'll encounter a short story that's a little bit <laughs> more helpful in that regard. But you don't think Garbage World? <laughs> garbage World. Well, I was immediately leaping to Dr. Island, but whatever. Yeah, okay. <laughs> As Jean Wolfe says, when a gift is deserved, it is not a gift, but a payment. This is Amanda. And this is Brent.